Welcome to the Ladies of LifeSite. We're ladies simply navigating the challenges and triumphs of this modern culture as moms, wives, sisters, and daughters. Join us each week as we discuss the raw questions and situations that we face through the lens of faith and freedom. So grab your cup of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice, and let's dive into this week's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Ladies of LifeSite. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving holiday. What a week it's been for the pro-life movement. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the Dobbs v. Jackson case this week, so we wanted to bring Joseph Backholm back on the show to talk about this case specifically and everything that you need to know about it. Joseph is a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at the Family Research Council. He served as a legislative attorney for three years and spent 10 years as the president and general counsel of the Family Policy Institute of Washington in Washington State. He also is a contributor at WNG.org, and we are so thrilled to have his expertise once again to weigh in on this legal case. We've had quite a few episodes over the last couple of months talking about abortion from a legal standpoint, as well as the efforts that pro-lifers are doing and what you specifically can do in your communities and churches to prepare for the day when Roe v. Wade is overturned. So in today's episode, Maddie and I are so thrilled to have the chance to pick Joseph's brain on what this case is all about, why it's significant, and what it means for Roe v. Wade, as well as cases that have been decided since Roe, utilizing Roe as precedent. Another point that Joseph discusses is this idea of abortion being the sacrament of progressivism, which if you want to hear more about this topic specifically, I highly encourage you to go listen to my interview with Seth Gruber on this exact topic once you're done listening to this episode. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Joseph. Well, thank you, Joseph, so much for coming on the Ladies of LifeSite podcast. Again, we're so thrilled to have you um, and just hear your expertise and your insight on this case. So first of all, can you kind of give us a, an overview on what the Dobbs v. Jackson case is about? Well, we all probably know about Roe versus Wade in 1973, and, and it was the the... The, the fundamental right to an abortion was created is the word that I like to use because uh, it certainly doesn't exist anywhere in the Constitution. And we've been arguing about it ever since. But in uh, 2018, Mississippi passed a, a, a law called the Gestational Age Act in which they said that physicians must determine and document the gestational age of a fetus before an abortion can be performed and that they cannot perform an abortion after 15 weeks. And there are a couple of exceptions, medical emergencies or severe fe fetal abnormalities, which were included in that bill. But that legislation out of Mississippi was a direct assault on Roe versus Wade, which said there is a fundamental right to an abortion, and after that, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which changed the framework, but still upheld the the fundamental the, the framework of Roe, which said that you can have an abortion. So this case is giving the Supreme Court the opportunity to reassess what they first did in Roe, what they later did in in Casey, and determine is it still true that we think the Constitution guarantees a right to an abortion. 
So why why would this case be significant then for Roe? I mean, there's a lot of talk out there, a lot of rumors that this could possibly be the case that overturns Roe. What is your take on that? Well, the reason it's significant is because the court doesn't often have cases that allows it to reconsider this because there's there's make no bones about it. This Mississippi law is a direct assault on Roe versus Wade. It was it was done so knowingly and it was done intentionally. And it basically said, we know what Roe says, but this is the law that we think we should have in Mississippi. And now the court has to try to square these things. And essentially, the state of Mississippi is asking the court, among other things, to say Roe versus Wade was wrong. And within the legal community, of course, there's a big debate about whether that's appropriate. Everybody agrees that it is appropriate at certain times. Nobody thinks that all laws, all decisions from the Supreme Court should be upheld for time in in memorial. You know, we have all these segregation cases. We have Plessy versus Ferguson. There's lots of Supreme Court decisions that the that the we look back on now with shame and regret. So there's nobody in the world who says, well, the Supreme Court said it. That's it forever. We just disagree in some cases about which cases the Supreme Court should overturn. And this is one where, of course, the pro-life side is saying, yeah, this was a bad decision for a whole bunch of reasons, and we can get into what some of those reasons are, but it was a bad decision. And then you have the pro-abortion side, of course, saying, no, this needs to be preserved forever. So if it's not preserved forever, if Roe, if this is the case, you know, that really takes on Roe and overturns it, what does that mean for cases like Casey, who were decided utilizing Roe kind of as a precedent? Well, Casey and Roe kind of come together. And of course, Casey was after Roe and it modified Roe. The standard that the Supreme Court proposed under Roe was this trimester framework, which said sometimes uh, you can abort somebody and you can abort a child in the first trimester, but not later for reasons that were kind of vague to them. But even by 1992, when the Casey decision was was decided, the Supreme Court had rejected the trimester framework from Roe, saying, realizing that that is an unworkable standard because it depends on this idea of viability, which it changes depending on where you live. A child in the United States, because of our medical capabilities, can be viable, quote unquote, at 21 weeks. And we have children walking around today who were born at 21 weeks. That same child born in, you know, Bangladesh, or you know, might not survive. Does that make it less human? Of course not. So that's a that's a silly standard to say. Well, viability, depending on if if you're able to live, because that changes based on the 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 century that you're born into or the hospital that you're born into. So. Um, the court will address Casey and Roe kind of together. What we're waiting to see is whether they're going to introduce some kind of a new standard that's a modification of those two while they still try to preserve Roe. We hope they don't do that. But I expect, even if it's not an outright overturn of Roe, that you're going to see a major step away from the standard of Roe. Uh, Justice Roberts is just a big fan of doing everything on the right slowly and, uh, and deliberately and kind of making radical changes only for the left. And that is a deliberate shot at him because that's kind of how he operates. He only does radical things if it's moving things to the left. He doesn't do anything, uh, quote unquote, radical if it's moving to the right, it seems. That's just kind of his instincts. But there it's going to happen together and i don't you know the court may not actually answer the question in the way that you've you've asked it there they may not address casey specifically or rose specifically i mean they will of course consider those things but they will have to just come up with something else 
that's really helpful, I think, to understand and for us to kind of keep in perspective. Kind of jumping into what the court's going to decide, can you kind of walk us through, I know we're recording this before oral arguments have taken yes. place, but everybody who's listening, you're listening after oral arguments have already happened. But Joseph, can you kind of walk us through what this process looks like? Because the Supreme Court's going to hear oral arguments on Wednesday, December 1st, but they're, they're likely not going to have a decision until June. I know we were talking about it as a team and they're going to hear oral arguments on Wednesday and then nothing. We don't get any feedback from them at all, possibly until June. So can you kind of walk us through what the oral arguments are, why they're significant, and then what the process is going on behind the scenes. Sure. It, it's helpful to remember that this has been a multi-year process. This this bill was passed in March of 2018. So we're three and a half years later when the Supreme Court is is getting around to this. And there there were there were arguments at a at a trial court level, a federal a federal court in the Fifth Circuit, and then ultimately it was taken up on appeal. Finally, the Supreme Court agreed to hear it. They have been briefed on this for many months, maybe maybe a year. I don't remember exactly when they they agreed to hear this and hear oral, oral arguments, but it's been many, many months that both the, the state of Mississippi and the plaintiffs in this case who challenged the law, as well as any other Miki. So you you probably heard the term, you're familiar with the term amicus brief, which is essentially at the, when a case is heard at the Supreme Court, literally anyone can file a brief with the Supreme Court making an argument about the case, the underlying case to the Supreme Court and encourage them to say, we think you should decide, you know, this way because of X, Y, and Z. And then other people can say, we think you should decide this way for X, Y, and Z. Because the court wants to basically give anybody who could be affected, who has a an argument that they think deserves to be heard, that those people get a chance to be heard. And the justices have been spending months reading those briefs. So they are not, when when they come into oral arguments, they have been thinking about this and hopefully thinking about it deeply for quite some time. And of course, because of the underlying issue of abortion, uh, we can be certain that they've been thinking about this issue deeply for quite some time, just because we've all been thinking about it for for a couple generations now. So oral arguments is the end of a very long process. How much is it worth? How big of a difference does it make? Depends on the case, depends on the justice. Uh, it's very possible that they're leaning one direction uh, right already. But there are there are certainly many cases in which oral arguments affect how a justice sees the issue. And there, there's kind of this veil of secrecy behind how the Supreme Court deliberates. But the probability is after oral arguments, so we're talking Wednesday afternoon, December 1st, they're going to hear the oral arguments and there will likely be a vote that day on the court. And they're going to have a sense of where everybody's leaning. But nobody's going to know this except for the justices on the court. And in that case will be assigned to somebody who it looks like is in the majority. That majority opinion will be written. It will be circulated amongst the justices. The dissenting judges, justices, of which there are certain to be some, would then have a chance to write a dissent. And then that dissent would be circulated amongst the justices. And they could write – and in sometimes, in some cases, you have uh, two – you have a, in a majority opinion. And then sometimes you have a concurring opinion in which justices agree with the outcome, but they have a different reason for agreeing with the outcome. In some cases, you have two or three dissenting opinions. So you could have – 
one decision with five opinions for different perspectives, either in, in support, concurring, and a majority opinion, or a, or a variety of dissenting opinions. But the justices themselves will likely know this on Wednesday. There are times, for sure, where over time, as they debate, as briefs get circulated, the, the votes change. Sometimes the majority becomes the minority. That has happened in time. But I think generally speaking, they'll vote after oral argument. They'll have a sense of what it is. And then they're just going to go through this process of writing opinions for months. And once once they determine that the issue is settled, there's nothing left for them to discuss or debate. Then they will tell the world. So what's your sense on how Amy Coney Barrett will vote on this? We don't have much evidence yet of her on the Supreme Court of how she might vote. But I'm curious on your thoughts. I am not a great sage of Supreme Court justices, and there are many people who follow the court more carefully than I do and have strong opinions because they've kind of cataloged in their own minds all of the opinions from the various justices. I will say that if Amy Coney Barrett is not a pro-life vote on the Supreme Court, we are all in trouble. And I mean, everything about her life, everything about her work up until the point that she got onto the Supreme Court indicates that she is. I have a hard time believing that she would vote the wrong way. What I will say is that in the legal world, sometimes things take longer than we would like them to. And there is a difference between outcome and process. And you can't always vote for the outcome you want. You have justices of the Supreme Court and judges broadly have to be mindful of legal principles. But I would be I would be shocked if Amy Coney Barrett just came down and said, yeah, Roe versus Wade is great. Abortion is a fundamental right in the Constitution and it has to be preserved forever. That uh, there are I've been I've been surprised before, but nothing Uh, But that would surprise me as much or more than anything I've ever seen in courts. I agree. I think that would be very, very shocking. (laughs) I also agree. Joseph, one thing that you touched on that I want to jump on, Lisa, I'm sorry to interrupt. But so you're talking about the law. And one of the things that we discussed as a team a couple of weeks ago was that, you know, it could actually be a really disappointing verdict and the case could get dismissed on technical grounds. I know that they've agreed to hear it. And so it's less likely that that will happen. But can you um, shed any insight into the possibility of this just being dismissed instead of having a, a complete ruling? Well, that that is always, there are always ways for judges to punt and for courts to punt if they decide they don't want to take something up right now or they don't want to answer the merits. You know, I, it's not really an issue in this case, but standing comes up all the time at the Supreme Court where a court who decides we don't want to deal with the merits of this case, we're going to determine that somebody didn't have standing. That that was the that was the case of the the Texas heartbeat legislation. The the court made a very narrow kind of standing ruling. So yes, there are that is that is a possibility. And and I have to and before I tell you, in order to tell you what those issues could be, I would have to be more familiar with the briefs and the legal questions. The, the, the smaller minutiae of the legal questions in this case than I than I presently am. So I can tell you how that would happen, but certainly that's always an option for the courts. And if they are not feeling courageous or if they are bargaining for some things, which always happens, and, and keep in mind, though the, the, the court is supposed to be, you know, justice is blind and they're not supposed to think about 
politics. They think about politics all the time and they, and they are trading votes for things. And, and we've seen some, uh, decisions in the last couple of years where there have been surprisingly broad broad opinions. We've had some nine O's and we've had some seven twos that were surprising, but they were very narrow decisions. And I'm confident that what happened in those cases is the justices on the left who knew they were going to lose agreed to vote with the majority opinion on much narrower grounds so that the scope of the decision would, would apply only to the plaintiffs in those cases and not have cases and not have implications beyond that. So that kind of horse trading happens all the time on the court. And so it's nobody, I think, can say with confidence, I know what's going to happen and I know how it's going to happen. We're all kind of hoping and significantly praying. But I, I, I know that we have some on this court that understand the gravity of this issue and the gravity of this moment. And, and I'm praying for courage and I'm praying for conviction that they, that they see this as an Esther moment where we were born for such a time of this as this to do away with this evil. And I, I, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit convicts some people so they understand that. I completely agree. And I think all of our listeners hopefully will join us in praying for just that, that they're just, we can let go of a lot of the politics that are going on behind the scenes and that these justices will be able to stand up and breathe, be brave. Cause that's exactly what we need right now. It's courage. It's going to take a lot of courage for them to, to rule on this the way that they should. And it would be so much easier for them to just punt it off. But again, like like you said, we need to pray that that's not the case. They are, so, it, you know, it, and, and I'll just say to that point that when you are on the Supreme Court and, and you're dealing with controversial issues, everything kind of takes courage in the sense that, you know, whatever you do is going to get a blowback. And it's going to get a blowback from somebody because it's a controversial issue. And, and my my sincere hope is that they're not thinking, oh, who's going to be the angriest about this, depending on where I go. But recognizing that any path that you take is going to be challenging. I'm just going to try to do the right thing. So as far as like Kavanaugh, I mean, as far as justices go, I've heard rumors that Kavanaugh could be the deciding vote if Roe were to be overturned. I'm not sure why this is. Do you have a sense on why that could be or maybe what your sense is on how he might vote? Well, I think you've got Gorsuch. You've got Gorsuch, Thomas, Alito and Barrett. And then Kavanaugh, that gives you five. And, and, and again, Roberts is kind of the, the, the constant political force on, on that, on, uh, trying to – and ironically, he's always – I think his motive is to depoliticize the court. But in doing so, he's always kind of reaching for the middle of everything. And that's why I think he, he, could, he has been thought of as, the, as perhaps the fifth vote. I think Alito, Thomas, and Barrett to me are like rock solid. Gorsuch has been – disappointing on some things, though not necessarily on the life issues. My sense is that he gets that. And my sense is also that Kavanaugh gets it. And if anything, boy, I hope if he endured what he endured to get on the Supreme Court, I hope he's not thinking I'm going to get people back. You don't want any judge ever thinking that. You want judges trying to interpret the law faithfully. You never want like personal grievances or revenge to be a motive of somebody on the bench. If you get that, that's a problem. But that being said, if you know, because we're all human, if if he decides the right way on this thing, it would be sticking it to the people who worked the hardest to destroy his life and keep him off the bench. That's just the reality of it. So I pray that that's not his motive. I pray he just wants to do the right thing. But that is uh, perhaps the cherry on the top for him. Yeah. And it's clear that the abortion industry and 
you know, those who are proponents for abortion have worked really hard, whether it's against Kavanaugh or others. So what do you sense could be the response from the abortion industry if this, you know, the Supreme Court votes in the way that we hope they will? What what do you sense could could be the response and their next move? We don't know exactly the scenario in which we're answering that question in, but with an outright reversal of Roe versus Wade or with a framework that allows 15-week abortion bans, 10-week abortion bans, 6-week abortion bans, a framework that says those things are constitutionally permissible, now you're going to see them be Have even more desperately. You're going to see states where the abortion industry has has more power and more influence. They're just going to be more radical on abortion. They love abortion. It it really is their sacrament, and it is the thing that they can do to declare their independence from natural law and all of its consequences. It's the ultimate declaration of independence for the left, and in 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 a sick um, way. But that's what it is. It's it's their affirmation that I am always in, in charge of my life in every aspect of my life. I'm accountable to no one and no thing and nothing else, including my own child, can get in the way of me doing what I think is going to make me happy. And that's why it's so fun. It's from a secularist worldview. It is the sacrament that you take that affirms that. And without that, they suddenly uh, feel like they lose control. And of course, control is an illusion anyway. But that is in a it's so emotional because it's really spiritual. And there's so much about identity and the nature of our existence that's implicated by this abortion decision. Am I in control or am I not in control? They desperately want to be in control. They can't be anyway, which is why they're really, you know. They're tilting at windmills in some way, but that is why I think emotionally they're so invested in it, which is why they fight so hard for it. And so what's the specific policy prescriptions? I don't know, but in the states where there are in – the, in the red states that you could realistically see abortion restricted or outright banned, you would see – I hope not fights to the death, but it would be – it would be – a very angry, angry opposition, and you, I would expect them to become even more hysterical. So sad, but unfortunately, I, I think you're hitting it spot on. We actually have another episode uh, with Seth Gruber, who mm. talks about that exact thing. Abortion is the sacrament of the left. And it's, I have to be honest, at first I thought, wow, that's, that's a really terrible analogy. That's kind of sacrilegious. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized how absolutely apt that description is. It is it is completely and truly a sacrament of the yes. left. It's just it's heartbreaking. One thing that I do want to ask you about, Joseph, kind of the opposite of this is what can pro-lifers do? So yeah, okay, this could be the end of Roe, but I don't think people realize that just because Roe is overturned, that doesn't mean abortion automatically becomes illegal everywhere, right? It goes back to the states. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about what that's going to look like and what we as pro-lifers need to do, because this isn't the end of our fight. It's really kind of just a a small victory on the way to to the final victory. It is an essential step. We can't get where we want to go without getting away with Roe, without doing away with Roe. But doing away with Roe cannot be the goal. And if you're going to build a culture of life, I, I can tell you that if this decision goes the way that we want it to, and Roe is actually overturned. The church is not ready for that moment. I'm confident of that. Now, that doesn't mean we can't get ready, but 
you will have millions of of women who are in crisis who who will be looking for another option. And my observation of the church to this point is that the church is not ready for that. It's not ready to handle that. And keep in mind, 20% of women who go to church once a week have had an abortion. So there are right now within the church confessing Christians and you know, practicing Christians, like sincerely practicing Christians, it's a problem within the church and then certain and, and taking care of that ourselves where these women can no longer go get an abortion down the street discreetly without anybody knowing. How are we going to respond to that? Because it's a problem within the church and we don't even know it because the secrecy and the ease of access to abortion is allowing shame to cover this and allowing people to think it's not happening in places that it's happening. How are we going to respond to that when, you know, the pastor's daughter or the good girl at church suddenly ends up pregnant and can't hide it in the way that she could have last year. But but in addition to that, all the people outside the church who are getting abortions, they're going to need hope and they're going to need something to do. And are we ready to adopt children? Are we ready to take these women in and provide them material support? I know we are not keyed up in the way. We have this wonderful, amazing network of pregnancy resource centers. But even based on what's happening in Texas, uh, they're being overwhelmed beyond what some of them can can handle just with with that one law. So we have a lot of work to do, but it would be a wonderful, wonderful challenge to be able to take on. I think it would become more real, and I think we can get there. We're just not ready there right now because, for better or worse, we have kind of all just been living in this real world where we where we kill a bunch of our kids and we just don't deal with it. You would have to deal with it, and we should deal with it. We should be prepared, but there's a lot of work to do to build a culture of life where women who find themselves in that situation know that they have better options. I think you bring up such a great point that I've always kind of thought of in the sense of we need to make abortion not just illegal but unthinkable in the sense that there should be so many resources and so much support tangibly for women who are going through these situations considering abortion that it would be unthinkable for them to even consider abortion because they have so many other options and so much support. And I think you make a great point that this if there ever was a time for the church to get ready and pro-lifers to truly uh, do this crucial work, it's definitely now. Um, because regardless of how this case goes, I think that's really the crux of the issue is not whether abortion's legal or illegal, but do we have the, the tangible support and the resources that women and men need that are facing the abortion industry who are showing them that this is the easiest option, that abortion, you know, truly is their only option, maybe? What do we have to counter that? So I think you bring up such a great point. Despite the fact that the church is maybe not ready for this moment, I think that's just an unfortunately human instinct that we never prepare in advance for things. And it takes that moment to show up. We don't plan in advance well as societies and as, as, as cultures, typically we respond to the moment that happens and then we adjust. And I think that's what we're going to see here. I don't think our lack of preparedness is reason uh, not to fight for the, the overthrow of Roe and, uh, when that moment comes, we're going to have to rise to the challenge, but there's going to be a, there's going to need to be a lot of us who recognize what the moment has become and rally our friends and neighbors. And that's really the time that we're going to be able to uh, prove whether we are really sincerely, authentically pro-life or just pro-birth as they like to criticize us. And, and we, of course, have been proving our, our authentically pro-life ethic for a long time through all of the other things that the church has been doing. But it's going to be another opportunity because the need 
is going to be greater than it has been in a very long time. Yeah, I think the need is is going to be great, but I'm glad that you said that because I don't want people to think that, you know, if we're up against this not being ready, then maybe we're not ready to overturn it. And I don't think that's the the thought process we should have because overturning Roe, this decision truly is going to save lives. And I think that's what matters. It's just a, a matter of, are we ready? Well, we will get ready if we need to be, but that's the point we need to get to. Yeah, you don't think about the pragmatics of are we ready of this if you know if there's a train full of, you know, of Jews being taken off to a concentration camp. You don't think, oh well, what will I do with them if I save them from the, from the concentration camp? You save them from the concentration camp, and then you figure that out. Right. I mean, the the underlying issue is just so fundamental and so black and white that you do the right thing, then you deal with the challenges of doing the right thing later. But there there's no hesitation. There shouldn't be any hesitation about oh well maybe we let them die because it's uh, then it creates a problem if they're still alive. That is of course a terribly morally obtuse way to think about the situation. So we just do the right thing, and then uh, the Lord will give us the resources and the strength to uh, deal with whatever that means for us. So before we end here, what are some things that you can encourage pro-lifers to do between now and June that they can either get involved or, you know, they can educate their friends? What are some things that they can do prior to this this decision coming down? I think, first of all, people really need to pray. And I we cannot overstate the spiritual significance of this decision and the principalities and powers and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places that desperately love abortion and want it to remain. That this feels like a political battle. This is not a political or a legal battle fundamentally. This is a spiritual battle. And it would be hard to overestimate the, um, the amount of pressure and the amount of genuinely demonic activity that could be activated to keep this from happening. And we need to pray against the the, the the darkness that will try to interfere in in tangible ways to keep Roe in place, and whether that's confusion or whether that's violence against people who are going to be making these decisions. And I don't think that's an overstatement at all. I mean, we have to pray for the safety of the people on the Supreme Court because there is legitimately nothing more, more important to a lot of people than the right to abortion in this country. And so the lengths to which they will go to preserve it, there, there probably are not any uh, limits to that. So we need to pray for safety and we need to pray for wisdom and courage and all of those things. But in addition to that, we just need to begin preparing our friends and our communities and our families. What are we willing to do? What are we willing to do? Let's have a, you know, have a Bible study, have a small group, have a sermon. You know, what are we going to do if Roe is done? What are you and I practically willing to do? Are we going to adopt a kid? Are we going to go, you know, are we are we going to start an adoption agency in our church? Are we going to pick up some help in the foster care system? Are we as a small group, are we going to all go get qualified to be foster parents? Are we going to begin the screening process so we can look after orphans and widows in need in our house specifically and in our church specifically? And uh, what are we going to do to partner with the local pregnancy centers, which are going to need to dramatically expand? Am I going to volunteer at a pregnancy center so that I can be there to help women who are coming in crisis when the when the abortion clinic down the street is no longer in existence because they can't do abortions. That's, of course, what we pray for. But that demand, it's just the market, it's going to go someplace. And am I willing to go to those places and meet that demand? So 
I just think it's a matter of we pray that truth prevails, that God wins, and then we pray for God specifically to show us what role he has for us in building a pro-life culture, whether that's giving money somewhere, volunteering somewhere, adopting somewhere, being a foster parent somewhere. He has a specific role for us. It's, it's the good works that he prepared in advance for us that we would walk in them. What is that good work that God has for us to walk in so that we can make our town, our neighborhood, our church a better place for women who find themselves in those situations and you know, potential orphans who come into very difficult situations who just need to be loved. So to me, that's, that's the beginning of, of laying the groundwork for a, a good thing to happen and then making sure when it does happen – we are part of the solution. So much of our thought process sometimes as pro-lifers can be that, you know, there's all these organizations and there's all these people doing different things and playing their part. And so often there can be this mindset of, oh, those people are already doing that. Or, you know, so I think for all of our listeners today, I want to encourage all of you to recognize that each of you plays a small part or plays your own part in this greater picture that really is, you know, leaving a, a legacy and Im- impacting lives, because that really at the end of the day is is what this is all about. And I think that as a movement, as a whole, if each person can really be just willing to open themselves up to be utilized by God to do their part, I think that's where where we'll see the victory and we'll see lives be saved. Joseph, where where can people go to read some of your writings and follow and connect with you? Well, I work mostly with the Family Research Council. I'm a senior fellow there, frc.org. I'm also a senior fellow in the Worldview Department, which is frc.org slash worldview. And I get the I have the privilege of just breaking down a lot of things that are happening in the culture from a worldview perspective and how do we think about these things. I also write now for World Opinions, which is a new project of World Magazines, World Magazine. And uh, that's WNG.org. In the opinion page, I have stuff there a couple times a month now as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joseph, for your time and your insight. I'm just so excited that all of our listeners got to hear from you once again. Thank you just for weighing in on your expertise, especially on this Dobbs case as it's happening. Keep in touch and we'll we'll encourage all of our listeners to go and follow everything that you put out there because I think it's just so great and so important, everything that you're saying and writing on in your expertise. So thank you so much. You're very kind. I've enjoyed it and look forward to doing it again. Well, thank you, everyone. And if you have any questions or need any updates um, on the Ladies of LifeSite podcast, you can email us at ladies at LifeSiteNews.com. Thank you so much and have a great week. 